Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would make us attentive to your voice. We pray that your voice would be louder and clearer and more transformative to us than all of the other voices in our life. And so come Holy Spirit and come work among us, come work through your word, come work in our hearts. Give us hope, give us joy, and mold and shape us to be your people in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So in his final address before leaving the White House, Ronald Reagan famously referred to America as a city on the hill. And he described it in ways that have been described by other United States presidents. He wasn't the first or the last president to call the U.S. a city on a hill. Of course, John F. Kennedy Jr. also said the same. And Barack Obama, a little bit later after Reagan, also called America a city on a hill. And they are referring with that phrase to what uh, many people call American exceptionalism. And it's this idea that there is something unique about the democratic institutions, uh, the constitution in our country, uh, the opportunities, the freedom, the justice for all, that makes America unique among all of the nations of the world. And so he, he, he said this in his final address And he said that America was a beacon of hope for all of the peoples of the earth. And it's interesting because in that address, he he referred, he he made, in making reference to a city on a hill, he said that the phrase was originally coined by a Puritan preacher whose name was John Winthrop. And John Winthrop also was describing the U.S. or what would then become the U.S. Uh, He was a, a, a Puritan preacher in the 15th century and, or not the 15th century, Somebody's like, get your history right, buddy. The 17th century, right? Because the 1600s are the 17th century. Yes, I was getting a little bit confused there for a second. Actually, I was just testing to see if you were listening. Tim, are you listening back there? Okay, just making sure. It's hard to tell with those face masks on. Where was I? Oh, yes. John Winthrop was a Puritan And as he was on a ship just outside of the East Coast and before the establishment of the Massachusetts colonies, he said that those colonies would become a city on a hill. Again, kind of speaking of this idea that that the nations of the world would be looking at the American experiment to see what would happen. And President Reagan pointed out in the 80s that it would be incumbent upon the American people to embody in their life together the great values that make America, America. And when America was embodying those values, we would be to other nations a city on a hill. Now, what's fascinating to me is that that original reference was not given uh, to Jesus by Reagan. He said it came from John Winthrop, Uh, But John Renthrop no doubt got it from Jesus. And I think it's instructive to contrast what those words meant on the lips of Jesus against what they meant on the lips of Ronald Reagan. You see, Reagan was speaking at that time from the highest office in the land. 
he, at that time and place, was the most uh, powerful or was playing the role of the most powerful position in the world at that time, speaking to the nation that had the largest military and the largest economy in the world. Jesus, by contrast, held no position of power. He was a peasant traveling rabbi, and he was speaking not to the most powerful nation on the planet. Instead, he was speaking to a marginalized, oppressed group of people, just a little ragtag group of people. And to them, Jesus said, this little nucleus of what would become his church, he said, they are the light of the world. Jesus says to his people, you are the light of the world. And it's interesting, just three years after Ronald Reagan spoke these words. They would open a presidential library in his honor that would be magnificent. I imagine some of you have seen the Reagan Library in all of its glory. Three years after Jesus spoke these words, uh, the empire wouldn't build him a library named after him. They would strip him naked, they would beat him, and they would crucify him. But although there's a great deal of contrast between what these two leaders meant when they spoke these words about a city on a hill, there was this overlap. When Jesus spoke these words, he was telling us that if we are to be a light to the nations, if his people are truly to be a city on a hill, then we must embody the values and the priorities of his kingdom in our life together. And when we embody the values, the way of life, the priorities of Jesus and his kingdom in how we live together, we would then be a light on a hill, a city on a hill, a light to all of the nations. But the question that I want to ask today is, what does that look like in practice? What would it look like for us as a community to embody the values and the priorities of Jesus in our life together? And this is an incredibly important question, I think, for us as a church to ask. You know, uh, this last week, it rained. And when it rained, actually, on this backdrop, uh, the, the city lights were washed away. And I came out this afternoon, and there was no city lights. And I'm like, what happened? We have our city on a hill series, and there's no city lights. And, and, I, and I thought to myself, that's a tragic parable of how many people perceive the evangelical church in 2021. As a city that, who, whose light has been sort of quenched, uh, Evangelicals right now are not necessarily being known in our world as people of light and love and truth. Instead, evangelicals can become known for those who bicker or for celebrity pastors who are exposed as sexual predators or for their embrace and their propagation of conspiracy theories or any number of things. This is what we can be known for. And when the church looks like that, we do not serve as a light to the nations. We are not a city on a hill. 
But listen, Jesus has so much more for us, Christ Church, than that. He desires that we would live into our vocation together as a community. That we would, in our life together, more and more learn to, to embody in how we treat each other, how we talk to each other, how we think, how we view the world, how we process life, that we would embody in our life together the values and the priorities of the kingdom of Jesus. But what, again, does that look like? And it's that question we want to explore today from a little passage in the book of Acts. You heard it read for you. It's from Acts chapter 4. And I think of all of the different places in the New Testament that gives us a portrait of the, the church at its best, I think we find it here. Here we, we, we get a portrait, we get a picture of the church at its best. And I just want to draw out briefly three features of the church at its best when it's living as a city on a hill, as a light to the nations, when it's embodying in its life the values and the priorities of Jesus. And it's found here, and I want to just draw out three different characteristics or qualities or marks of a church that is living as a city on a hill. And the first thing I want to draw to your attention is the beautiful unity of God's church at its best. Look at what it says in chapter 4, verse 32. He describes the beautiful unity of the church. Look at what it says. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. He says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul. Now, don't misunderstand what he's saying. He's not saying that they were of one and the same opinion about each and every issue in life. The early church certainly was not that. In fact, it says that the full number of them were of one heart and soul. Who are the full number of believers that are spoken of here? Well, to answer that question, you've got to go back a couple chapters earlier where the church began, and it began as a diverse community of people. There were uh, Jews from all over the then-known world had traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And it was there, these different Jews from their different cultural and social locations with their different languages and practices and food preferences and no doubt musical uh, preferences. They all came from all these different parts of, of the world. And they came to Jerusalem and there they heard the message of Jesus. They responded to this message. They're, they were cut to the heart. And 3,000 people were baptized on the day of Pentecost. And this new, diverse community of people began in the city. And his description here is that this whole community, this diverse community of people, were of one heart and one mind. Again, what he's saying is he's not saying that they all had the same ideas and opinions about politics or music or food or uh, whatever, you know, uh, they, had they had differences, but they were unified in one heart and one mind by their commitment to Jesus and by their experience of the grace of Jesus in their life. And listen, I have said this at least a hundred times to you all, and I will never tire of saying this, that we are different. There are differences among us. We come from different experiences in life, different social and cultural locations. Uh, some of us 
you know, uh, we, we, are, we, we, we kind of lean more conservative, some more uh, liberal. Uh, some of us, uh, maybe, maybe we grew up in a real church experience. Some of us have a real racy past. You know, uh, some of us uh, like country music and some of us like good music. And I'm sorry, I can't, I, I, that's the last, last, uh, the, I had one more, I could, I had one more negative comment I could make about country music and I just used it up. So I won't say it anymore. Listen, there are theological differences among us. Uh, some of you are young earth creationists. Some of you are intelligent designers. Some of you are theistic ev evolutionists or whatever. You know, there, there are, uh, so, some of you uh, were sprinkled when you were baptized. Some of you were immersed in water. Uh, there, there are differences when it comes to uh, uh, Christian liberties. Uh, some of you are teetotalers and some of you brew your own, right? And uh, there, there's just differences among us but despite our differences, what unites us is far stronger and more important than what divides us. And what unites us is Jesus Christ. And may it be our experience of his love, our shared need for his grace because we are all a mess because of our own sin. May our commitment to Jesus, may that be what unites us together as a family. And may we be the kind of people that put aside little minor differences. And actually, not just put them aside, let's celebrate them. And let's learn from each other. And let's not be threatened by difference. Instead, let, let's appreciate that and learn what it's like to follow Jesus in someone else's skin and from their different experience. And let that let strengthen us and we can grow together and become better, not in spite of our differences, but because of our differences, we'll actually become stronger and more faithful disciples of Jesus. And so this early church, they were marked out first by this beautiful picture. They were of one heart and of one mind. They were of heart and soul united together because of their shared experience of the grace of Jesus. And this is what God has done in Christ. He's taken people who are different, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. And he, he, is, he has brought us all together in one new family in Christ. And so number one, they were marked out by a beautiful unity. But secondly, I want you to see that they were also marked out by a radical generosity. Look what it says in verse uh, 32. Again, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And check this out. It says, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but instead they had everything in common. And so they had a radical attitude toward their possessions. I would say a radically uh, counter-cultural attitude for most Americans toward their possessions. They didn't say that anything they had was their own. Instead, they held all things in common. And look what it says. There was not a needy person among them. Isn't that incredible? There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, they brought the proceeds of what was sold 
and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, don't misunderstand what is being described here. He is not describing here the economics of communism. This is not a forced or a coerced redistribution of wealth. There is no centralized government or authority that is using the power of the state to extract resources and then redistribute them in a coercive fashion. No, this is a voluntary redistribution of resources. And so this is not the economics of communism, but it's not the economics of capitalism either. This is something radically different. This is the economics of family. This is how a family views its resources. You know, I don't know about you guys, um, but in my household, in my home, you know, if I see my kids at the table uh, with a freshly a toasted piece of sourdough bread from poppy cake. Come on. <laughs> With a fresh guacamole or a little avocado kind of like mashed on top of there. With a little chili lime salt on there. Come on. If I see them eating that, I don't look over there and say, you're eating my bread and my avocado and my chili lime seasoning. No, they're eating what belongs to the household and family. It's totally proper for them to eat that. Now, if some stranger walked into my house and they opened up the refrigerator and they started yanking stuff out, I'd go, whoa, easy. You know, but, but this is different. That's the economics of family. And this is the early church. Now, again, it wasn't that they sold all of their possessions and then they had a, only a common pot that everyone drew upon that was managed by the apostles. Now, as the text goes on, as you read more in the, the, the rest of the book of Acts, what you discover is that here the... Uh, they still retained some households because they would meet in people's homes from house to house. But it's that where they had excess, they shared that excess, they sold it, they took those resources and they redistributed those and they shared with all who had need. And I think what's happening here is in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, God gives his people a vision for this idealized, this idyllic community where there would be mutual sharing, and it describes it like this in Deuteronomy chapter 15. If any among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns or within your land and the Lord, that your Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand and share with him and lend him or her sufficient for, for their need, whatever it may be. Then he says this, you shall give to them freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. For, for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother and to the needy and to the poor in the land and share with them. And here in the early Christian community, they were practicing, they were embodying this beautiful ideal of mutual, radical generosity and sharing. Now, of course, they didn't just share their resources. They shared together their hearts and their lives 
and their tables. Uh, They shared in corporate worship together. They shared in study together. This was a community of mutuality and sharing. And here, where 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 the church embodies this radical ethic of Jesus, of generosity and hospitality and mutuality and caring and sharing, there you see an incredible and powerful witness to the power that God's grace can work among a community of people. And so we have this beautiful vision of radical generosity and sharing. And then finally, we see in the, in the text, not only were they marked out by a beautiful unity and a radical generosity, but thirdly and finally, they were marked out by bold testimony or witness to the resurrection. Look at what it says in verse 33. It says, and with great power, The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. You know, it's interesting because at the beginning of this passage, there's this statement about the radical generosity, the mutuality, and the sharing that was happening within the community of faith. And then at the end of the passage, again, it describes the radical generosity, the radical sharing that was happening within the community of faith. And then right in the middle, between the beginning and the end, is the statement about the powerful witness that they were giving to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think the implication is, is that at least part of the power of their witness was the quality of their life together. In other words, they, the, the people around them were not just hearing about God's work in Jesus Christ, that the God who created heaven and earth had acted astoundingly in the death and resurrection of Jesus, had given himself fully and unreservedly for both rich and poor, for, 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 for Jew and Gentile, who had, in, in a great act of self-giving, divested himself, generously giving all. They didn't just hear about God's work in Jesus. They were seen in a community of people that same generosity and hospitality and a new kind of unity that was being birthed in the middle of, of, of this old creation, this new creation coming to birth, this new life that God was working. And when they heard the message of the gospel, they came to trust it because they could see it worked out in practice. You know, it was a great missiologist whose name was Leslie Newbegin who said this, and I I read this in his book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, years ago, and it's lodged in my head, but he said this. He said, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a community of people who believe and live by the gospel. You know, that word hermeneutic, it simply means an interpretation or an explanation or a meaning. In other words, how is it that somebody... What is is the best kind of interpretation or explanation or meaning of the gospel? And Leslie Newbegin says, the best hermeneutic for the gospel is a community of people who believe and who actually embody and live by the gospel. And when we do that, we live into this calling to be a light to the nations, a city on a hill. And so this is the vision that Jesus gives us in this text. And friends, this is the church at its best 
It's the church in its most ideal state. And when we strive toward this vision, toward this goal, we, we, we more and more begin to exude the light of the gospel lived out in practice right in the middle of people. And we give the gospel credibility. We give its credence and believability because people see it lived out in a community of people. Now, it's also important to note this, that while we are given here a portrait of the church at its best, this is not the only picture of the church we get in the book of Acts. In fact, this idyllic vision quickly gives way to something that is not so idyllic. In other words, the early church had problems too. <laughs> it's interesting because in chapter 4, where we see unity and generosity and bold testimony, as you get just into chapter 5, you see that the generosity of the church is followed on the heels by an incident of ugly greed, religious hypocrisy, and showmanship. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and where some people were selling their goods and giving the proceeds to as many as had need. Ananias and Sapphira saw this as an opportunity to present well before other people. And so they go to the apostles and they pretend uh, to sell a piece of property for, let's say, 100 grand. I don't know that they sold it for 100 grand. It wasn't a piece of property in Southern California if it was sold for 100 grand. I don't think you can get that, can you? No. Those are Albuquerque numbers. But they, they take the proceeds to the apostles and they're like, hey, we sold the property for so much money. And they pretend like, like they sold it for this amount and then they present. And Peter looks at him and he says, look, you are lying. And he exposes him. Ananias is struck dead. And then his wife comes in and creates the same lie to the church and she's struck dead. And then it says that the youth, the young men came and carried the bodies out, which I think in the text, it actually is a reference to the youth group in the church. So that's a special ministry the youth, men, the youth group didn't know they had. Well, chapter 6, there's another story. And here in this story, the unity of the church now yields to infighting and bickering because there's a group of Greek-speaking Jews who were converted to Christianity and they were being discriminated against because they were culturally and socially different than the Hebrew-speaking, Aramaic-speaking Christians who maybe were a little bit more small town, peasant from Jerusalem, a little more concerned. They were discriminated against the Greek-speaking, the Hellenist Jews, and, and their, their widows were being neglected. And so they start complaining. It's crazy. In a local church, people started to complain. Can you believe that? And there it was. The, the unity of the church then yields to this infighting. Well, after the story of the religious hypocrisy that surfaced in the church and then the infighting that surfaces in the church, there's, there's chapter 7 is a story of crazy tragedy that strikes the church. And Stephen, one of the youngest, brightest, 
uh, most gifted, eloquent leaders in the early church is tragically taken and he's stoned to death. And then following upon that in chapter 8, the early church in Jerusalem that, that knew such wonderful unity and love and joy in this rich communal life together, it says that a great persecution from outside came upon the church and the church was scattered. And we read that in a verse, but the relational pain of that was real to those people. They had been deeply enmeshed and involved in each other's lives. And, you know, if you've ever been a part of a church that had like something really special going on, and maybe even there was like great community groups going on, and maybe even they had a capital campaign, and then there's just something real special going on, and then all of a sudden external circumstances, external circumstances come and they just disrupt everything. You see, those first Christians, though this church was marked at its best by unity and by generosity and by bold witness and testimony, the author of the book of Acts is real. And he says, look, there was also problems in the church. There was hypocrisy and there was religious showmanship and there was divisions and there was discrimination and, and there was infighting and there was bickering and there was tragedies that created pain and there was former, you know, great community that was disrupted by external circumstances. They had problems in the early church just like we have problems in our church because their church had people in it just like our church has people in it and people have problems and people create problems. Can I get a witness on that? Listen, I just want to stand back and say this. We, 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 we pause and we've kind of drawn out this beautiful picture of the unity, the generosity, the bold testimony of the early Christians. We've said, look, this is who we want to be. This is who God is calling us to grow into. And yet we need to be real. The church is full of people and people have problems. And on the one hand, what I want to say is this. Don't give up on the vision that God has for the church. Don't give up on the church. I know some of you, like me, you have been hurt by Christians. You've been hurt by the church. You have been let down and disappointed by the church. It's hard to be in church for any extended period of time and to at some point make yourself a little bit vulnerable and to risk and trust and not at some point have somebody let you down and hurt you. And some of you have been wounded by the church and I just wanna say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that the church has let you down. I'm sorry that you have been hurt, but you cannot give up on the church. Jesus launched the church. He inaugurated the church. We cannot give up on it. And we cannot, we cannot give up on the vision Jesus has for the church. You know, I, I know that the church has problem people, but that doesn't mean we just accommodate to negativity and we succumb to the, to the, to the darkness 
and we just say, look, good enough is good enough in the church. Let's just get by by being a vendor of religious goods and services and try to put on some good services for religious consumers so people can come to church and they can get their fix and then they can tithe and then we can fill the seats up with people and I can feel justified because I have a job and the other staff members can and you can feel good about yourself because you went to church on Sunday morning. Like, no, that's not, that's not what Jesus has in mind. He envisions a new family, people who are vulnerable with each other and trust each other and share their resources with each other and give themselves for each other. This is the vision Jesus has for us. And so we cannot give up on the vision. We've got to fight for it. You know, the early church, they fought for this vision. When the problems arose, they named them, they exposed them, and they dealt with them. And when stuff comes up in the church, we got to name the ugly stuff and expose it. And we got to work for something better. You know, we got to do better than what we've been doing. You know, so we cannot give up on the vision that Jesus has for the church. But listen, nor can we give up on the difficult people, the flesh and blood people that exist in the church. Listen, the church has problems because the church is full of broken people who inhabit a broken world. And when you share life with any community of broken people in a broken world, you will at moments and times get hurt and you will have hardship and difficulty. You know, there, there was a, a little season... Uh, you know, the first couple months of the new year when my father-in-law was writing these little, like, uh, reflection and devotional thoughts that he was sending out via text to uh, our family. And so at night before bed, we would read these little devotional thoughts from my father-in-law. Well, he's a CPA, and tax season started, and so he, he had to give up on that. And so Alicia, my wife, uh, she took up the mantle, and the next day, she wrote her own little reflection that then she shared with us. And I thought it was appropriate for what we're talking about today, so I just wanted to read it to you. Uh, she wrote this. She says, I forget exactly why I was going out into the backyard. I guess it isn't important to the story. The fact is that as soon as I went out, I started noticing the bird poop that lay here and there on the bricks, again. And then as I walked past the garden, mounds of dog poop lay here and there in the planter, again. Sigh, gross, more crap. I'm tired of it. Who wants to see this, let alone deal with it? Certainly not me. I would really rather walk out into a perfectly crap-free yard. This is the pastor's wife, which is why she is awesome, by the way. She wants a perfectly crap-free yard. But why is the crap there, you may ask? Why is my yard literally littered with it every day? The answer may surprise you, especially based on how I feel about it. I invited it in. Yep. I opened the door to my life and said, crap, come on in. When Brutus, our large pit lab, and brave baby, our dog-like hen, joined our family, by default, we invited the mess that comes with them. 
Intuitively, we know that when we welcome living creatures into our lives, they come, quite frankly, with a truckload of crap. That is why diapers are a most wanted and common gift at baby showers. We expect it. We prep for it. We don't even bother too much about it. Then somehow we start not to expect it. The bottom line is, and we all know this, as living creatures, we just come with it, par for the course, part of the territory. On my walk around the yard, I began to consider if I would rather be on my own, virtually crap-free, or at least just dealing with my own stuff, or would I want to be surrounded by others who bring their crap with them? And then she says this, with relationships, life is full of more love, more joy, more adventures, more memories, more laughs, and well, more crap. And friends, that's good, huh? And it's biblical. You know, Proverbs 14.4 says that where there are no oxen, the manger is empty. But from the strength of an ox come abundant harvests. You know, it's only, it's only if you are willing to embrace a community of broken people and you choose to be vulnerable with broken people at the risk of sometimes being hurt and then enduring the hurt. It's only then that you can actually begin to, in surprising ways, experience God's grace for broken people. You know, God himself came among broken people in a broken world among all of our stuff, right? The grace of God became flesh among broken people. And if you want to experience the grace of God, if you want to know the healing of the great physician, then you need to recognize that you yourself are sick and broken and in need of God's grace. And only when we collectively recognize that about ourselves and we recognize that other people around us are also broken, needy people in need of God's grace, that we can experience God's grace in fresh and surprising ways. And so let's be a community of people, Christ Church. He says, look, we embrace the real, broken, messed up people around us. And we thank God that they embrace the broken, messed up person that is you and me. Because it reflects the love of the God who has moved heaven and earth to bring healing to broken, messed up people. Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are a God who makes beautiful things from that which is broken. And we thank you, O oh God, that for the last 2,000 years you have been gathering together by sheer grace around your son Jesus, hurting broken people so that they can find healing from the great physician. And I pray, oh God, that the same grace you have extended to us, the same generosity that you have shown to us 
God, I pray that that grace and generosity would break into our experience so profoundly that we would move out toward each other in fresh and new ways with generosity and with grace. And I pray, oh God, that you would make this little nucleus of believers here in the San Gabriel Valley and the surrounding LA communities that, that gather here weekly, that come together in a family, I pray that you would make us into a, a light, a, a beacon of hope for broken people so that they too could come and experience your grace and generosity and learn the joy of living generous and gracious lives with other broken human beings. God, do that work among us by your spirit. We know we cannot do that work alone. Come, Holy Spirit, come work among us. Make us alive to your grace and generosity. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.